I, I love being in the water. My mom always has said that I swam before I walked. And I always remember love being in pools. I would be in pools and I would be all pickled. You, you know, most athletes will tell you that they gravitate toward a certain sport or sports because it comes naturally and it feels good. Um, if it doesn't come naturally and it doesn't feel good, you're not gonna do it. And you're certainly not going to excel if you are doing it. The first part was discovering that I, you know, I just had something. It was, you know, this, that X factor secret sauce or whatever you wanted to call it that a lot of the other kids that I was swimming with didn't have. And, and that's like, that's a real magical moment in a kid's life when they realize that, okay, I'm, I'm maybe good at something. Where can I take this? What, what, what's the next steps? I was able to pursue my career in that way, which is like, hey, you know, I want to break the national age group record for 12 year olds, 11 and 12 year olds. And I did it. And it just goes from there. Hi, I'm Chris Whiteout. Welcome to Living It, the podcast where we join experts in the experience of being human. Be bold. Say yes to adventure. Say yes to living it. Welcome to Chris Waddell Living It, where we talk with experts in the experience of being human, people who have taken the risk to live their dreams and live fully. Today, we're talking with John Moffat, who is a two-time U.S. Olympian swimmer, former world record holder. He's also a three-time Emmy Award-winning television producer. But you know, some of these are the things that you get introduced with all the time. I, in doing my research, I love that you were an NCAA top six award, which meant honoring the top six most outstanding student athletes in America. He's also a husband, a father, host of the Sports Life Balance podcast, where they talk about pivotal moments in their careers and how athletes shaped and how, how, how athletics shaped and transformed their lives. John, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Chris. I'm really happy to be here. This is amazing. And really, ultimately, I want to get to how athletics shaped your life. Shaped, and because and, it's, I look at it, and your two Olympic games were at 16 and at 20 years old. I mean, you were a man in many senses, but not necessarily. But looking at that at that introduction, I get introduced all the time as well. And and sometimes are there ones, are there parts of that introduction that you look at and go, that's the most important part? I don't think I do. That's an interesting question. Um, I, I I guess looking back, I like that there's a life's work there and that there's something to show for the life's work. Um, and and you, you also have to remember, I, I just grew up as a regular kid without notions of, of being able to do big things. It, it kind of just didn't even occur to me. Um, and then I discovered at a young age, at 11 years old, that I was, I was really good at something. And then a coach told me, Hey, you know what? You can be really good. And then he told my parents and my parents said, the coach says you could be really good. And that was like transformative to me. Um, and it all kind of springboards from, from that and that pivotal experience when I was a kid growing up. When you were 11 years old. So what was that moment like? Because you were just, I mean, 11 years old, you're, you're, you're a lump of clay in a lot of ways as an 11 year old, but you happen to be really good at something. What did that do? Did that, did a light bulb go on for you? Like, 
hey, I'm different than my peers. Hey, this could be something that is a change in my life, like something different than what my parents had experienced. What what goes through the mind of an 11-year-old when you recognize that, hey, you're a bit of a prodigy? Well, I, I, I didn't realize that. It's only significant in hindsight, looking back, because that's kind of my origin story. Um, but the light bulb that went off was the first one was that I, I love being in the water. My mom always has said that I swam before I walked. And I always remember love being in pools. I would be in pools and I would be all pickled and, you know, my, you know, miserable and cold, but I love the water. And so the, the first light bulb is maybe I love the water because I've got an affinity for the sport. Um, and that there's adults that are telling me that. So that's, that's the first light bulb. The, the second light bulb where I kind of started thinking that I was a little different happened later um, when I started developing the skills and realized that I had an aptitude for learning and becoming fast as a swimmer that those around me didn't necessarily have. Um, and so, yeah, it was, that was the second light bulb um, was discovering that I, I am in fact fast and and let's see where I can take it. That's the next step. How did fast happen? One, you said you had the affinity for being in the water. Did that mean that you worked harder at it than your peers? Or, or was there some sort of physical affinity as well? Uh, it, it was it was definitely started as a physical affinity. It was just a, you, you know, most athletes will tell you that they gravitate toward a certain sport or sports because they, because it comes naturally and it feels good. Um, if it doesn't come naturally and it doesn't feel good, you're not going to do it. And you're certainly not going to excel if you are doing it. Um, so the first part was discovering that I, you know, I just had something. It was, you know, this, that X factor secret sauce or whatever you wanted to call it that a lot of the other kids that I was swimming with didn't have. The second component though, was the fact that I wanted to, I, I thought to myself, where can I take this? Um, and, and that's like, that's a real magical moment in a kid's life when they realize that, okay, I'm, I'm maybe good at something. Where can I take this? What, what, what's the next steps? Um, and I was able to pursue my career in that way, which is like, Hey, you know, I want to break the national age group record for 12 year olds, 11 and 12 year olds. And I did it. And it just goes from there. Was there a bit of reality based on the club, your swimming club that were there other people who had, who had broken national records or people who went to the national trials, went to the, to the Olympic trials, to, to the games. Did you see any of that to make it a reality or was it kind of a reality that was just personal? It was, well, on my first swim club, it was called Mount Baldy Aquatics. And no, there wasn't any one of that level. However, in Southern California, there were really, really good swimmers, like people who were my age that ended up becoming legends multiple world record holders, world champions, um, multi, multi NC2A champions. They were there. They were right there. And I was blessed that I started swimming early on with a lot of those people around and you knew who they were. You could, because you can just see it, you can feel it. Um, and some of these people, you know, like Jeff Kostoff, um, Sippy Woodhead, 
Steve Barnacote, Jesse Visayo, Mark Good, um, uh, uh, Brian Goodell. You know, these some of these people are you know world record holders, gold medalists. And before long, I got fast enough where I was in lanes next to them, or at least at the very least on the deck with them or in the locker rooms with them. And you realize that they're just humans and they're just trying to kick your butt and you're trying to kick their butt. So, so, so the, the veneer was, was, was removed early on. It wasn't, these are gods. It was, these are humans. And did you recognize that pretty early on? Like take that sort of, you know, take the air out of the balloon kind of thing. I, I, I never, I never tire of meeting someone who is, was at one point in my life, that stranger who's a hero or heroine and you get to meet them. And one of the first ones really was like um, Bruce Furness, who won two gold medals in the 76 Olympics. I was on the swim team with him in 1978, 79, 80. We were training together. And it's like, how, what did, what on earth did I do? A little kind of normal kid from Claremont, California. How on earth am I training with these people? And how on earth am I, do I have this, crazy notion to try to be like them i don't know where it came from it happened in such a short compressed time because you're talking about him in 76 but mm -hmm. then you made the team in 1980 and yeah. you have a you have a july birthday so you had just turned 16 like did, did you have your did you have your driver's permit did you have your driver's license I didn't have my driver's license. No, no, I had to, I, I turned, I turned 16 and it was like the, the trials happened within a week after that. I think if I, I would have to go look at a calendar, but, um, but no, um, we, we, after, after the 1980 Olympic team was selected based upon those trials in Irvine, California, um, we, we then went to China for three weeks. Um, and so I remember, like being really excited to come back because I would be able to take my driving test once I got, came back. So it was literally, I remember I was exhausted and jet lagged, but it was literally the first thing that I did the first morning that I could after I returned, got my license, I passed and, uh, and yeah, it was a rite of another rite of passage. Now, was there any conversation in that car when you were doing your driving test that, Hey, um, you know, what, what else do you do? Well, I just made the Olympic team and I just came back from three weeks of swimming in China. Was there any conversation with that? Or were you just, just an ordinary 16 year old and keeping your head down? No, no, com no conversations about that. In fact, I, I, it's, it's, it comes up, but it's not something that I wear on my sleeve. Like this morning, um, I met, I met a woman who went to Tokyo and she had the Olympic rings on her ankle. Um, and so I don't have any of those types of things. And I, I love when I am able to, and this might be a coping mechanism from the years when I was transitioning out of an athlete, but I love to be able to prove myself on my own merits outside of what I once did when I was a young adult and teenager. So I, I try, I've, I've worked many, many different places. I've worked where people don't find out for a long time. Um, 
and and that's the way I like that's the way I like it. That's kind of just always my mo. Um, it's just recently that I've become more involved within the Olympic and Paralympic movement that it's become less that way. I've kind of, you know, I turned my back on the Olympics and all that I did in swimming. Um, I think because that was my way of just dealing with it, that, okay, you got to move on, um, embrace the suck and, and, and figure it out on your own merits now, not on your merits based upon who you once were. So that's, it's, it's an interesting thing, right? Because you go to school and you do sports, both are with, both of which are foundational in your, your education, right? Your preparation for whatever you're going to do next. I think in looking at what you, looking at the introduction for you, to me, being in the NCAA top six, the top six student athletes in the country, that to me was the one that jumped out in terms of you earned it. Mm. But how did you, how did you look at swimming in terms of the scope of your whole life? Cause it was, it was a different time too, right? Where you, you weren't going to be a swimmer through 40 years old. No, those opportunities didn't exist. Um, in fact, you, you couldn't make any money or you couldn't even compete within, you know, uh, with, for team USA. I mean, if, if, if it was found out that somebody paid you under the table for speaking, for example, you're done. That was it. That was it. And, um, and so it was a very different era. Um, it's one of the reasons that you look back 40 years, 40 plus years, and most swimmers hung it up by the time they graduated from college because there weren't opportunities. The col college for swimming and many other sports, as you know, that's, that's the breeding ground for, you know, the next generation of world-class athletes in the United States. Um, now, thankfully, and rightly so, there's opportunities for those athletes to continue competing because they're being supported. Um, but that, that didn't exist. And I certainly didn't, you know, I didn't have family money or something that would allow me to, to do that. Right. And so what's the, what's the emphasis as a swimmer? Because you also won two NCAA titles after your second Olympic games, you know, as a team, you won two NCAA titles in 85 and 86, right? Yeah, I won three individuals, I think. So, yeah. Right, right. No, I was talking about the team and, but swimming is one of those weird, I mean, swimming, skiing are weird sports in the, in college, they are team sports that are individual sports. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and so where's the emphasis as a, cause, cause one, I mean, we didn't even talk about 1980, you made the team, but then that's when it was boycotted. Right. Correct. Yeah. So you didn't go to Moscow and, and so you missed out on the first team and then your second, and so that was in between your sophomore and junior year of high school that you, that you would have gotten uh, yeah. in 1980, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And then in between your sophomore and junior year of college was was the games in LA. What's the context? Is it are the Olympics the the pinnacle for swimmers? Is NCAA swimming? How does it? How do you how do you sort of sift that out within your mind as an athlete? Look the 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 Olympics are for swimmers that's where you become somebody other than just a really good swimmer that you have to retire eventually and 
put it behind you. So if you are, if you are blessed enough to win a gold medal, it's trans life transforming for good or bad. Right. Um, winning an NC2A title. It was awesome. Winning with all those guys on the team and all of our collective struggles and our, our amazing chemistry to that led us to be able to win those NC2A titles. That's also life transforming, but it's not on a public stage. So 84 was, it was gutting for me. It was terrible. Um, uh, the injury that, you know, I, I had to do rehab on the injury for quite a while. I didn't even get back into the pool until I think right before, if I remember correctly, right before, um, Halloween was when I started getting back in the water. I, I just needed to, to heal the leg. Um, but what, what kept me from just like saying, just hanging it up because there's a part of me that was just was like, oh, I can't take this, um, was, was those guys was the fact that we could win an NC2A title together. Um, that's, that's what kept me going. And I had two more years to contribute. I signed on for four years. So, so yeah, it was, that's what, that's what kept me going was, was, was the opportunities ahead. Which, which is a big deal. I mean, you talk about keeping going because swimming is a major commitment. This is, yeah. you know, you're talking about a race that is plus or minus a hundred meters plus or minus, a, a, you know, a minute, right? So your world record when you broke the world record was, one one oh two thirteen yeah 100 100 yeah, meter breast yeah it sounds right yeah so so broke the world record you broke the world record beat the uh broke the world record which had been held by an american teammate well steve lundquist he was he was in the lane next to me when i did it so yeah yeah and and he had broken it four or five times prior to you breaking it oh he was he was he was the greatest of the era. I mean, he was he was dominant. So you're talking about gold medals as being transformative, right? That that it is the rest of your life potentially. You're approaching these the finals as the world record holder. In the prelims, you just went three one hundredths of a second over your existing world record. You beat the previous world record holder, who was your teammate. So looking at it you, you look at that and go okay this is the moment and mm -hmm. and in swimming you guys put in so much work for that moment you know to hope that your shave and your taper and everything all meets at the right time and it looks like it's all going but then you get hurt and think you might not even be able to to compete what's the thought process with regard to the gold medal with regard to competing i mean you probably had enough time to kind of think about things, I would imagine, or try not to maybe. Well, let, 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 let's, uh, I did, I did say that winning a gold medal is transformative and it is, but for me, and I believe for the big lesson that comes out of this is what's transformative is trying to win the gold medal. That's transformative in the big scope of things for your life. Mm -hmm. um, ultimately, you know, you, somebody winning a gold medal, it will fade. There will be somebody who's coming right behind you and is going to be winning that gold medal and is younger and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's just the way of the world. But what doesn't go away is the fact that what you said is that, yes, I was focused 100%, especially in light of the 1980 disappointment of not being able to go because of the U S led boycott. 
I was 100% laser focused on 84 and that day and that moment. Um, it was, it was surreal, um, because the, I'd never felt better. I'd never trained better. Um, as you said, I was, you know, I broke Steve Lundquist's world record at the trials beforehand going into the games. I seriously, I was never in better shape in my entire life and everything was looking really dang good. I mean, it was, it was very exciting. And, um, and then that prelim swim, um, the muscle went, it's called, it's called the adductor magnus. It's uh, basically your inner thigh mm -hmm. and it just tore, it just gave, um, which is a huge deal for a breaststroker. Yeah. Because you use that muscle a lot, right? a lot. I mean, that's like a, it's a, it's a dominant, it's, it's a dominant muscle in the breaststroke kick. It's, and, and so, yeah. And I had never, I'd never had any sort of injury like that before. Um, so it came out of the blue. It was with about probably 40, 35, 40 meters to go. Um, and injuries are strange when they happen. You know, obviously you've got a fair amount of adrenaline when you're competing at the, at the games. Um, 10,000 people in the stands. Yeah. And, um, and, and you, uh, the, the adrenaline gets you through it, that initial, but believe me, I, it was, it, it, it hit me like a baseball bat. And it really hurt, but it, like, as you probably know, injuries, when they first happen, you're kind of, they, they don't hurt they, the, once the inflammation and all of that settles in and the bruising begins, that's when it hurts. So it was that final that night that, that, um, I was only able to do because the doctors had numbed me up. Um, they injected me with xylocaine and, and, uh, my leg was a noodle. Um, and needless to say, it's very difficult to swim breaststroke when your leg's a noodle, but it numbed me to the point where I could go through the motions. And I knew that I had to, I, I, you know, everything was caving in around me. Uh, my, my chances of the gold medal were completely dashed within an hour or two after the injury, I knew that I couldn't do it. Um, so I had to deal with that. My next thing that I dealt with, I remember consciously thinking about this is that I don't want to regret this. Um, so I decided, and the doctors filled me in that, look, you, you're going to re completely re-injure this muscle. You're going to make the tear worse by doing this. And I said, I don't care. Um, this is, this, I, I got to do it. So that's why I got numbed up, um, because I couldn't kick breaststroke at all in the warmup. And, uh, and I remember very clearly it was, it's, is just a bizarre day. Um, there were 15,000 people in the stands and my parents, you know, you got to remember back then my parents, my grandparents, you don't get to talk to them. You, there's no such thing as cell phones. You didn't, they, they, you know, they, they just saw my prelim swim. They didn't even know that something happened. Um, so um, I come out and I, you know, I, I come out onto the deck cause I couldn't warm up. They obviously knew something was wrong when I couldn't warm up and um, and I'm all wrapped up and my leg is numb and I remember very clearly, uh, Carrie Steinseifer and Hansi Hogshead had just won the gold medal. They tied for, for gold in the hundred freestyle. And they had just, that just happened. And there was a window of opportunity where I could get into the diving well, the same diving well where Greg Luganis and, uh, you know, was legendary diving in 1984. And I was the only one out on deck other than a smattering of officials and et cetera. And 
I remember feeling every one of those 15,000 pairs of eyes on me. And, and, uh, and I tried kick breaststroke and I was able to kind of fake my way through it. I, I don't even know how many laps I did. I didn't, couldn't have warmed up for more than like two or three minutes. Um, and then got out and within 15 minutes or so I was in the finals. That, I mean, it's amazing just to think of the 15,000 people. Did they, did they energize you? I mean, cause you're talking about the adrenaline that you had in finishing the prelims. Did, did, was there an adrenaline part of those 15,000 people or was it more of a reality part of there are 15,000 people here and I'm not at my, this is the moment I want to be at my best and I'm not at my best. No, it, it, it was energizing for the prelims and soaking it all in. It was the polar opposite for those finals. I was beyond horrified. I just, I was just in shock. I couldn't believe it was happening. Um, so it made it worse knowing that I was being watched by a lot of people. Without necessarily having the explanation of what had happened or any of that stuff. Coming to the realization, I mean, you have, you have a really mature uh, approach to it or or opinion about what happened that it's that it's not about the gold medal it's about trying to win the gold medal did that yeah. happen in the moment or 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 is that a product of a lot of therapy afterwards how did this work it, it's 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 definitely hindsight and growing up the when it when it happened it was just it was indescribably um crushing i was gutted was completely gutted. Um, and so, no, you don't have perspective. First of all, I was 20 years old and I'd been working for years toward this moment and it was awful. Um, and, uh, I had to be there for the rest of the competition. Um, it was, it was a really, it was painful. Um, so no, no. Um, it, it was definitely through years of just kind of like, you know, just dealing with, okay, well, things, bad things happen and something bad happened. And now John, you need to move ahead. And, you know, that's, that's a lesson that we all learn that when failure happens, okay, you can, you know, pout for the weekend, but then you really need to start thinking about, okay, what am I, what am I going to do to get myself out of this hole? What am, what did I learn? Um, and, and how do, how do I rebound from this? And being really smart about it, trying to be really, really smart about it. But, you know, emotions like when, failure is incredibly painful, especially for, for athletes. It's just, it's, 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 it's a disaster. <laughs> and so, yeah, I think it was years. It took me years to realize that had, I, it's interesting if I would have won the gold medal, would I have said that? Would, would I, would I say that my life was transformed by all the hard work that it took to get there? rather than the gold medal? I mean, I don't know. I don't know. It's an interesting question and I'll never know the answer. It's the hypothetical right now, right? Would I have if this had happened, but you don't know because it because it didn't happen. But that's the, that's the question. I mean, from the outside, I feel like, I feel like looking at you and knowing you and that, 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 it pro that you probably would have come to that same realization 
but it might have been an entirely different path to do it to to achieve to arrive there what's the was there a benefit in still being a student and still being an athlete too because if you were just a professional athlete and you could well have done that i mean you could well have if if you were in modern times if if it were now and you were as good as you were at 16 years old you might not have been training with a college team you might have been training you might have been a professional effectively after graduating from high school well to an- answer the first question yes so those guys around me my coach and the support and the the um absolute 100 percent you know backing of them they they wanted me to heal because we were all so close but we also wanted to win um so of course that that definitely helped um as far as the hypothetical what if i i don't know the answer to that but i will tell you that you know living you know living on through the years and getting older that you do realize that sometimes hitting that bottom, hitting that bottom is exactly what rebounds you into becoming something that you wouldn't have possibly been. So I often say like, or my wife will, will say that I, um, if, if I won the gold medal, we probably would have never been married. I, I don't know, but my life would have been a lot different. Um, and maybe, maybe we wouldn't be so, and I'm super happy with my life. I'm kind of a happy dude. It's it's weird to say, but man, I have, I have been blessed and so much of it has seems to have stemmed from that, that day that that coach pulled me aside and said, you know, you, you're good. You could be good at this. And, and that's the, that's the magical thing that I like to especially tell kids that, that you never know who around you will be the next president. You never know who around you will become an author or a politician. And, and the, the most important fact is that when you're looking around and wondering, oh, that kid's really smart, he will you know, come up with the cure for cancer. Well, don't forget to look at yourself too, because no matter what you think of your 11-year-old self, that can change in a blink. And, and the difficulties often are what define us, right? Often are the, the source of the resilience that allows us to one, have big dreams moving forward, and and two, to be able to struggle through those big dreams. What's the thought process? Because it, it's so interesting to look at at what we see now. You know, we see we see you know professional athletes. We see endorsements. We see people effectively getting getting rich from the Olympics. And 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 it's not everybody, obviously. It's a small percentage. A very, very small percentage. But those are the people that we see that much more of on television. So it, it's a it, it's it has a disproportionate weight in some ways in terms of our perception of, of the games. But you knew that effectively college was the end or close to the end of of your swimming career regardless of of how it was going to go regardless of of a gold medal or not and what was the was did you have a greater emphasis on on your studies on what you were going to do it was like because the plan of sports was not this sort of infinite it could be two years it could be 20 years it's like no it's it's pretty finite yeah, good question. 
So did you, did you have that plan of, yes, this is what I'm doing, but it's almost still extracurricular, even though you're at the very top of your sport. Yeah. It was uh oh moment. Like, all right, let's make the new, let's, let's start making the new John here because the reality of what I thought John could do. So we are talking in third person about myself. It's dumb. It's, it's weird. It, it was, you know, once I realized that I wasn't going to be Olympic gold medal dude, that I was like, okay, now you got to figure out something else. And thankfully I was, yeah, I reemphasized school, um, without, without de-emphasizing swimming, but I think really, really poured my heart and soul into school, which is something I wasn't necessarily doing when I was training for 84. It took all my energy, um, not all my energy, but it was, but yes, definitely transformative after, after the fact. And you were a design major. What's a, what's a design major? Well, it's early, early on. Um, it was, it was, I was, my advisors were one advisor, a guy named Matt Kahn and, um, Matt Kahn was a genius. He's one of, one of, one of my first mentors for sure. And then one of his best friends was a guy named, is a guy named David Kelly. And David Kelly is the one that's famous for inventing the mouse. And he owns a company called IDO and IDO is one of the biggest design firms in the world. And he also, he also transformed the way people think about design. Now design and design thinking is, is much more applicable to mainstream business. It's part of, it's part of the vernacular on, especially in tech um, and anything that has to do with, 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 um, with people using your product. And so I was very fortunate in the fact that I was, I was being led by Matt Kahn and, 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 and by association, David Kelly. And they allowed me to do what I would call a wanderlust. And I took classes, all kinds of different classes, but I had to tell my advisor why this class is important for my pursuits within design. For example, I took a perception course, which are no joke. Um, you know, it's all about how we, how we perceive and, and, I had to tell him why I wanted to do that, but it was one of the greatest courses I ever took. Um, and so my point is, is that now people within industry know what design thinking is. These were the, these were the mavericks. These were the pioneers. And I was blessed enough to be part of that before it was a thing. Um, that's kind of a long roundabout explanation, but it was yet one more thing that, that fell in my lap that, um, that I'm extremely, um, I don't know, extremely thankful for. Now I do look back and think, what would have happened if I would have gone in, you know, into design as my profession? Um, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending upon how you look at it, I had a second mentor named Bud Greenspan, uh, who 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 um, encouraged me to go into the entertainment business, um, and. And so I did, I kind of, I kind of followed Bud Greenspan's lead. He made the, the official 1984 film, 16 days of glory. Right. And, and Bud Greenspan for anybody who has, you know, in that era, who, who has watched anything around the Olympics, like he was, uh, 
he was the guy who created the the ethos of of the olympics in so many ways certainly of that era for sure yeah yeah that the voice the 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 mythological proportions of the olympic games storytelling was he was the pioneer of that truly um and he's looked upon today as as one of the great sports filmmakers of all time he really was and one it- more blessing that i received i it's it, it is all quite perplexing to me, but I'm, I'm, I have tons of gratitude for all these experiences. Well, I mean, there are two different things going on, right? I mean, you're talking about those sliding door moments where, you know, the, the guy next to you might well be the president or the, or the, or the girl next to you might be the next president of the U S and you don't know that and look at yourself and those kinds of things. But it's, it's one having the opportunities and two taking advantage of those opportunities making the most of those opportunities it's easy it's easy to say well i was i was lucky and i got pushed along here and i'm like i'm not buying the i was completely lucky you were lucky in in parts of it but seizing that opportunity my my acting coach he always used to say that uh that uh, that that luck is when preparation meets opportunity for sure and thinking out of the box on the design part i mean ideo is sort of the ultimate thinking out of the box and the ultimate problem solving. It's a great way to put it. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like, okay, well, we have to solve this problem. What's the best way to solve this problem? And it's not necessarily the traditional way that everybody has approached it as a student. And then you had two more years as, as a competitor, how did that, or you had more years as a competitor, but two more years as a collegiate, as an NCAA competitor, how did that sort of, did the design major then affect what you were doing as an athlete, what you, how you were approaching your swimming, how you were approaching your training. I think it was a life philosophy. They were two different orbits for me. They were, they were two distinctly different orbits for me. However, they were all within the same ball of energy because I had a finite amount of energy. And I remember those final two years at in college one waking up multiple days, more days than not wondering how the heck I'm going to get through this day. Absolutely. I, I say that, uh, that being a student athlete at Stanford was the hardest thing I've ever done. It, it, it was, it was really hard. And especially when I decided that I wanted to really excel and apply myself at school. So, um, yeah, it was, it was really hard. Um, very difficult. But it's again, it's worthwhile. It's so worthwhile. I'm so glad I did it. I had so many amazing experiences throughout those years. Interesting. Well, I was also it, so I had read or heard some of some of your training where at one point you were doing more kind of like reaction based training, like light oriented. And that's where I was thinking there might have been some overlap with the design and but there but there's not. This was no. just strictly. Yeah, they're they're two very different things. I I'm sure, you know, my outlook on life, had, you know, has it has a great deal to do with it because the design thinking is observing, you know, what people need. Um, for example, somebody who doesn't have the use of their legs, they need a wheelchair. Like you need to. There's there's like lots of different applications. Um, it's it's like okay, what what's the pain point for the most amount of people and create a product for them um, where it was kind of inverse of that before David Kelly, where you, you made a pretty product and hope people bought it because they need, they needed it or wanted it. 
Right. Or you're filling a need. Yeah. It's and you talk about the wheelchair thing, which is interesting because I mean, in some ways, wheelchairs started as like chairs that they put wheels on. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's wild to go back. I look at some of like the old Stoke Mandeville. Uh, you know, uh, Stoke Mandeville is where the Paralympics started back in 1948, and it was it was a you know effectively like a military hospital. And you look at some of these guys who are then starting to play basketball, and it looks like they're getting around in recliners. Yeah, right with wagon wheels, <laughs> which probably doesn't help your basketball game. No, but it's it's a perfect example of that and the the specialization um, uh, for adaptive athletes is a great way to look at that. It's like how do you make somebody with uh, an amputation, a low a leg amputation, how, how, do you, how do you make them walk as comfortably and, as, and in, the, in the case of the Paralympics, as fast as possible? Well, there's, there's, there's designers that are watching these athletes and studying their movements and like looking at the composite materials and this and that. And they're going back and it's like, this is what the athletes need. And then some smart dude or lady came up with a blade, right? Um, racing wheelchairs, another great example of that, right? I'm sure there's still all kinds of technological innovations going into adaptive sports, right? It, it really is. And to the point where like the, the German long jumper, amputee long jumper, was jumping at the national championships and they essentially said no we are barring you from the national championships because you're jumping too far oh really yeah wow i didn't yeah. realize that yeah no and and so so it's interesting how far the design can go but back to back to bud greenspan yeah sure how did this conversation work where he was encouraging you to go into into movies into the media how, how did that happen? What were you even thinking about it? I mean, you were you were the subject of of his movie. He 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 let me know very early on that he really he loved my story from a storytelling point of view, from the lens through the lens looking at the Olympics. Um, and he was rather unabashed. He's he's he would he was like very open and very kind and very gentle but he was not afraid to heap on praise. Um, and so he, he always like really enjoyed my story. And we created a bond when I started helping him promote the film. Um, and so I would, I would speak. Um, and it's a, it's a, the segment is with Rowdy Gaines, who people might know from all of his commentary of the Olympics and in the swimming. And he was too old. Right. I mean, Rowdy was 25 yeah. years old. He was too old, but it's catapulted him to a career that's still lasting. So this is some of what you're talking about in terms of that gold medal. Uh, I think that's a, I think that's a good example. Yeah. But on the other hand, from a storytelling point of view, you know, it's like you want the yin and yang. And that's I'm sure why Bud selected to do parallel stories of Rowdy's journey and my journey, mm -hmm. you know, my journey, wah, wah. And then there's Rowdy's journey, which is, da, 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 you know, and, and, um, but that's life. That's life. It's just, and, and I've, you know, I've come to realize like, yeah, bummers happen. <laughs> Bad things happen. They just happen. And it's sometimes there's not a reason for it, but if you're, but I'm able to like, if, if I wasn't in Bud Greenstein man's movie, where, where would I be? 
like without his encouragement. I don't know. There's, there's a million things that go into a life that, that influence where you end up taking and, and sometimes you won't even see it coming and you will take a turn and it will transform you. And there's, as long as you live, you will have that opportunity that if you make this turn, it might lead you to a place that is amazing. And, and this heartbreak that you had was effectively the thing that catapulted you to a new career. Yeah, I, I guess that's that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, yeah, for for sure. I mean, it things things hitting hitting the bottom. It really it really affects you. It really like you have to really really take account um, for what you're going to do next. So, yeah, that's an interesting way to, to put it. That that if it were not for like if I won a a, a gold. I probably wouldn't have been in the movie. There wouldn't have been a yin and yang. I wouldn't have been part of the yin and yang story of Rowdy. Well, it might've been a different movie, obviously, but yes. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know where it would lead me, but like I said, I'm here. I am, you know, getting onto the years and I've had a great life. So all those lefts and rights that I took have led me to this point that I cannot, I I'm, like I said, I'm grateful. And I've, I've been blessed. You were talking about the promotion of the movie. What was, I've seen those movies like on television. That's where I saw the Bud Greenspan movies, but yeah. were you putting them up in theaters and traveling yeah. around to theaters? Yeah, they, they're, they're, they would have different premieres. Um, and I remember the first one was actually a rough cut. Um, and it was, it was, I, I'm pretty sure it was in San Francisco. And that was the first time I really got to interact with Bud because I was going to college up there. And, um, he asked me to speak. Um, and it's, it, it's a very, it's a very raw topic, especially then it was a very raw topic for me to talk about. So I think how soon after, how soon after the games is this it's like within a year, I think, okay. I don't know a year or so. And so I suspect that blood reacted to me wearing my heart on my sleeve. Um, and, um, and then it was the the premiere the world premiere was in new york city and it was at the is it the kennedy which one's which one's the one it's is it the kennedy center the big one in in manhattan the kennedy center i, I thought the kennedy center was in dc is in dc what's it what's it called um i'm trying it, to think it, of what that might be anyway it was it's in this big grand ballroom and there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people there and I'm kind of nervous because I know everybody that everybody's going to, after this, everybody's going to know what happened to me. And then Bud comes up to Rowdy and I, who I think, I believe we're talking right there, you know, kind of off to the side. And he said, would you mind saying a few words? I'm like, Bud, <laughs> you, it's like what I'm just supposed to say some extemporaneous words. Like, couldn't you have prepared me a little bit? There's 8,000 people out there. It's a world premiere of your film. <laughs> and I remember Rowdy had a similar, had a, we, we both had similar reactions, but Rowdy had already done a substantial amount of public speaking at this and point. And this is like the who's who in the audience too, right? Yeah. Black tie kind of thing. or I, I, Yeah, I think, I don't know. I don't, I, I don't remember if it was black tie, but I was certainly in a suit. Yeah. It was world premiere. It was, you know, all the athletes were there. Like it was no holds barred. And and I remember, um, I remember just, you know, going up on stage. I don't remember what the heck I said. I do remember thinking to myself, oh man, I have to, I have to be on the stage with Rowdy, who, as you know, is incredibly charismatic and, you know, just a charming, 
force, you know? Um, and, uh, and, and so, yeah, he had me speak at the, the world premiere. Did you <laughs> go before or after Rowdy? I don't remember. I don't remember. I remember being intimidated by Rowdy though. Oh, that is awesome. But this is, this is the thing. And obviously you don't remember what you, what you said, but it sounds like there was a, a great reaction to what you yeah. said. Like I said, I don't remember. I don't, I just don't remember. I remember doing it. And I remember thinking to myself, I can't see anything right here. It's like when you were probably, you know, when you were hosting the, the uh, U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Hall of Fame a couple of months ago. I mean, you go up on stage, it's hard to see. <laughs> you did a great job, by the way. You did an amazing job. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. That was, uh, it, it is. And, 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 but it's, it's also the, the audience can affect the way that you approach it. Speaking to your peers is far more intimidating than speaking to almost any other group. Oh, you're saying in context of of the uh, Hall of Fame? Well, the Hall of Fame, but I'm also talking in your context as well, because you were speaking effectively to the Olympic community. Yeah. Yeah. So this is these this is the who's who and people you might not even know who are super powerful or whatever, you know, and so. Yeah, I, I don't think any of that. <laughs> I don't remember thinking any of that. It's just all a blur. Um. Look, you, you, you know that, um, that competing at the level of the Olympics or Paralympics, it's, it's a blur. And, and oftentimes these moments of, of, you know, immense gravitas in your life, they're, they're, they're impressionistic. The memories are impressionistic and, and rather vague. Um, and so that's one of them. That is definitely one of them, but, but the reaction, obviously, probably the biggest audience in some ways for you or for the, for the future of your career was Bud. Yeah. I didn't realize that at the time. You, did, you had no idea at the time, but apparently you made an impression on him, which is when you think back on, when I think of it, he's one of the ultimate storytellers. Yeah. And so to make an impression on one, one of the ultimate storytellers, how did, how did that then lead you to a career in film because film's a great place to to sort of start at the bottom too right i mean no matter who you are you know i mean if you have your masters in film unless you've done something that is allowing you to then do the next thing you're good to get the coffee absolutely i was sweeping the floors and yeah i was up early getting the you know getting the food you know delivered and all that yeah for sure yeah, you you definitely start at the bottom, and 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 it's it's humbling, but it's uh, it's liberating. Um, and I, you know, the person who hired me, um, he knew of my background, but I asked him to not publicize it. I was, you know, and and but people still found out um, because I really, really just wanted to make it, you know, just by being the hardworking grunt of a production assistant, um, and it all led somewhere it all led to me doing the next steps. Um, and, uh, and for that, I'm really, really appreciative. And Bud never helped me get a job or anything like that. It wasn't, it wasn't like that, but we, we remained intact. And whenever I was in New York city, I would go visit him. Um, often when he was here in Los Angeles, we would go have breakfast. Um, and, uh, and, and so we kept in touch up until, you know, up until the end when he started getting sick. And, uh, and what a, what a great, 
what a great relationship to have. And I'm sure it, it is that mentor, almost father figure kind of thing that you're checking in and yeah. like, John, what well, are you, what are you up to? And I'm, I, 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 as a, I, I, I love stories. I love telling stories. And if you're going to tell stories, you need to have, you know, circular kind of, you know, start where it begins. And, and this is, this, you know, this, is, this has a nice button in that um, when I won my first Emmy and this was 20 years later or something, 20 something years later. And, and uh, the next morning, the first call that I made was I, I got to the office early because we, we partied all night, but we still had to be work, at work the next day. I got, got to the office early and he was on the East coast. So I called him and I remember very clearly, it was important to me that I call Bud. Um, and I remember he said, he said um, something that I will always remember and always cherish. And that is, he said, well, now, now, John, we're colleagues. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and it's very Bud. It's a bit, he's very regal. <laughs> so I can actually hear his voice. And, and to me, that's like, that's, that was the ultimate validation. Did you, do you felt like you were a colleague as well? I mean, he said that. But he did you that. feel like, okay, yes, bud, I'm a colleague. Or it's like, no, you're still Bud Greenspan. No, I just wanted him to be proud of me. <laughs> yeah. How did that go from, from the, the sweeping the floors, getting the coffee to, to winning the Emmy? Because is it partially, I mean, when you're, when you're in that PA kind of position, is it volunteering for everything? Is it paying attention? How do you how do you move up incrementally? And it's probably different for everybody. But how did you move up incrementally? Well, I think I think it always boils down to you that you're trying to make your boss's life a little easier. So trying to figure out, okay, I was working directly for the first assistant director who's running the set. He's the one that makes sure that the lighting's all ready to go, that the director is in his trailer waiting, and that the actor is ready to go and out of makeup and wardrobe and all that. Like he's the one. So I just tried to be super uh, vigilant um, and be, be on the lookout to making sure that I could help him do that job. Um, there was actually a second ass uh, assistant director who I directly reported to. And, but yeah, you, that's, that's how you learn. In fact, I, I learned that early on. There was a, there was a guy named um, Greg Winchell who was a great breaststroker who, who would have perhaps been the great, you know, one of the greatest breaststrokers in American history, all la Steve Lundquist. In fact, he was a competitor of Steve Lundquist and I, I trained, I got to train with him and he had just come back from uh, the 1979 Pan American games where he got second to Steve Lundquist. And, um, and, but I would, when I was trained with him, I would watch his stroke underwater because I wanted to see what he did. And at first it made him really mad, but then like he said, you know, because I was the little squirt and like, what the hell am I doing looking at him underwater? So how are you looking at him underwater? What were you doing? Going underwater and putting my goggles and looking up and watching him swim. By. Really? So, you're, so he's swimming over the top of I did you that. kind of thing? I did that all the time. Yeah. It's important. It's important. And I, like, I wanted to try to be like him, right? Emulate. And, and he was he ended up being fine with it because he, he took it as a compliment that I respected his ability that I wanted to be like him. And so unfortunately he was killed. Um, he was killed in a car, in a motorcycle accident, like the day after 
he got back from from uh, I think it was the day I was it, I remember it was the same day that he came to the pool showing his his Pan American Games silver medal, and it was that day he was he was killed. So, um, you know, it's it's again, it's like would I've had two Steve Lundquists to contend with if Greg had survived? Very well, so very well, big possibility. Um, you just you just never know. But anyway, the observation. So yes, observing, observing. The the observing and the way that you could be you could best help the first the the first assistant director and the second assistant director was by knowing their job enough to be able to anticipate. Well, of course, you don't know their job when you first. But you're start, trying but, to figure it out, right? But yes, I mean, it goes back to the, you know you're questioning about design thinking, and the essence of design thinking is observation, like. You see, you see um, a person walking down the street with, you know, with, with a, um, like a, a, a paper bag, you know, and holding, holding their possessions. And it's easy to say, well, he shouldn't, it shouldn't be a paper bag. He needs to have, you know, he needs to have a bag, a regular bag to hold his stuff in. And I think perhaps I was informed by my, the, my encouragement academically that observation is is the key, and um, I think I think that was just a maybe it's innate in me to try to observe and learn, but it's also probably what helped me through my career. This perception course, part of it, sure. Yeah, yeah. It all it's all in part and parcel. It it all all contributes, right? It it is interesting. So where do, do you have your your big breakthrough moment? I mean, certainly we made it to the Emmy, but where do you kind of think, okay, I'm, I'm making it in this industry. I, I'm not just disposable because it, well, it, that's an industry where it can be really easy to feel disposable. Right. Yeah. I was, I was, I was, I, I, I worked really hard and I kept getting hired. I just kept getting hired and kept getting opportunities. And when those opportunities came, even though you know, my first, first time I had a chance at writing, it's like, I'm not a writer. That's the last thing I wanted to do when I was in, I just didn't ever aspire to be a writer, but yet I got an opportunity. And so I did it and they liked it and they kept hiring me. That's just, that's the way everything is. Right. And, and just a, a quick comment on, on the Emmy, you know, on the Emmys is you, of course, if you're in the television business, like I am, that's the pinnacle. That's what you're trying to do. That would be, that would be your, you know, a dream come true. And it, and it was, but it's also lightning in a bottle. Like so many things have to contribute to me having been on the amazing race on those early years. Right. And, and yes, I saw early, you know, the first season of the amazing race. And I'm like, I want to do that show. And I figured out who I knew there and I started bugging them and bugging them and bugging them. And I eventually got hired. And that's what led, but I, you don't see any of that while you're doing it. You just, you know, you just keep going on to the next thing. And, and I was just really, really fortunate. I think, I think just like winning a, a Paralympic or Olympic gold medal, you were just fortunate that you were ready that day and that everything went well. It's, it, it's, there's so much good fortune that has to go in to having a moment like that. I'm with you. I often say it's, it's a lifetime of work for the hope of a moment of brilliance. That's a great way to put it. At the right time. You know, and because that moment of brilliance can come at the wrong time too. You're like, well, it was a beautiful day of training. Well done. Like, yeah. Good. It, it's not quite at the right time. What looking back 
on on your on your career because you said you're a happy guy yeah for the and most looking part back in your career as as a swimmer in television now doing a podcast being a husband being a father are, i didn't even ask if you're if your kids are swimmers no they hated swimming they thought it was ridiculously stupid um and my wife my wife was a swimmer right. she swam at stanford and um and both of our children had beautiful strokes absolutely beautiful strokes but they hated swimming so our son was a was a very fast runner and he 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 ran track in high school he was a sprinter but he unfortunately tore a hamstring his junior year and just never he never was able to bounce back from that our daughter played volleyball and she actually she actually played volleyball in college um and and they both just they both just graduated this past year so um yeah, there's, I guess there's some athletic genes going on in there someplace. With, with that said, I, there's not many athletes, if any at all. I guess my dad played football in high school and did a little swimming. But for the most part, you look back at, at, at my family and on both sides, there's no athletes. But you also need to, you need the perspective that World War II, like you didn't have necessarily the luxury of being an athlete when you were, you know, going through the depression and then ultimately having to deal with world war two. So, so that that's a contributing factor, obviously. What's the message. So, so you didn't pass on swimming because yes, there has to be swim swimming DNA that you and your wife passed to your kids, but what's the message that you, that you pass to your kids with regard to, I mean, it's really probably more of a life message than it is necessarily a sports message. Is there anything from your experience that you look at and say, this is the thing that I wish that I had known kind of as I was starting. I think, I think perhaps, first of all, my wife and I realized that our success in athletics cast a large shadow, excuse me, on them. And we did everything that we could possibly do not to have that shadow eclipse their feelings toward athletics. So that was like, at least in my mind, that was, that was really in the front. Um, but on the, on the other hand, I think that we were, you know, because as you know, um, life is filled with heartbreaks and, and, and athletics is kind of a microcosm of life and, and man, oh man, there's some, there's some Lulus that happen. If you, if you, if you aspire to do big things, it's just the way it is. You, you, you push all your, push, push all your, uh, all, all your, um, all your money to, you know, on one bet <laughs> when you lose, it really hurts. And that's, that's kind of the pursuit of, of athletics. You know, you're, you're putting your chips down on the table and you, 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 you lose. And so I think perhaps maybe we had some understanding um, with regard to the kids and possibly helping them navigate their way out to the other side. That, that it's not quite as crushing potentially if you push all your chips in and it doesn't work because that's i mean you had to experience that being so young right i mean 20 years old you had somebody at 11 years old say hey you could be good at this yeah so nine years of 20 years almost 50 percent of your life yeah and you know granted there are probably some parts four or five you know whatever you might not remember a ton from those years so from your your conscious memory 
it, it can be really it can be really damaging can it i mean this this oh. sense of like this is who i was and who i thought i was for as long as i can remember thinking about who i am well as as positive as i try to remain it also there there's there is there's there's an ugly side um there's an ugly side that athletes experience when they uh when when they retire after they retire from being an athlete. And there's many, many different reasons for this. And some people deal with it better than ours. Like I said earlier, my way of dealing with it was turning my back on that guy that was the swimmer boy um, and trying to be, a, you know, something else. Um, but uh, some, I think it's in many cases, it's even more difficult for people who have had resounding earth shattering world famous results. Michael Phelps comes to mind. Um, you know, there's a number, number of really big athletes. And the reason Michael Phelps come, comes to mind is because he produced a documentary for HBO called the weight of gold, which I'm sure you've, you've seen, but, and I, I say this again and again, but it's, um, it is a, uh, it's what athletes talk about. Like when you really get candid and when there's not a recording device and you start getting to know each other, you talk about some of those lasting scars um, that are inevitable through the pursuit of trying to do something that's that big. Um, and it's just like, you know, the odds are so against you, but you still, you still try to create scars. There's a lot of resistance. It's, it's constant resistance. It's constant resistance, and that's part of the attraction too. The, the how much the odds are against you as well, right? Yes, I mean, I, I think, I think it's it. I just whatever happened. Where I just had this DNA makeup where I had a fire in my belly that was quenched by my athletic career. It made me feel better, um, and so. I wanted to see how far I, I could take it um, because it was therapeutic. It's still therapeutic. I swam in the ocean today because, because it's just, it's meditative. You, I know, I happen to know you do a lot of working out. In fact, the first time we ever spoke was when you heard me talk on the rich roll podcast and you were doing the, you're doing, yeah. you were doing your, your bike, right? Yeah. Yeah. Your stationary bike. Yeah, it was training. I, you, yeah. you, luckily, you and Rich had a really long conversation. You got me through, I think, like a three-hour workout that day. It was great. <laughs> Between the two of us, I think we could be a little bit long-winded. Long but um, yeah, Rich, Rich, wow, what he's been able to do as well. Like his story is just, he's uh, hes done amazing things. And I'm, I'm very proud of him. And It, it is amazing. And hes he's been a great voice and opened so many eyes. Is that part of the reason for you, this transition from, from sport into life, like the sport life balance? Is that why you went into your podcast or these, the conversations that you have with athletes and in the quiet moment that, that really are the transparent moments? It's, it's, um, it's, it's a lot of things. Um, a lot of them was, was circumstance as well. It just so happened that I was really trying to figure out a way out of the entertainment business at about the same time COVID hit. Mm -hmm. And I had some projects, but they basically, everything kind of died during COVID. And that sounds crass, but a lot of projects just suddenly disappeared. And, but I still wanted to tell stories. And I, I, I was, I admired Rich 
um, for what he would have been able to do. And I, I, I wanted to, I want, there's a part of me that wants to tell the story of athletes. I love athletes. And I think that they're a great example um, to, to help anyone sort of like wade their way through life. Um, so that was kind of the, that was kind of the impetus. And then I was, you know, during COVID, I'm like, I've got to do something. I'm going to go crazy. And I, uh, I started the podcast then. Um, it was in, I think, November of 2020. So it was a year and a half ago or so. Uh, and, and yeah, so that was, had, had COVID not happened, would I have started the podcast? I don't know. It's like so much in life, right? right? Like, would I be in entertainment business if Bud Greenspan hadn't have been, you know, hadn't have taken me under his wing, but that's as a result of me not winning a gold medal. It's all like, it's life, it's life. And it plays out and you don't necessarily see where it's going. Exactly. And the, the question with the podcast is, I mean, you've been through so much in your career. I mean, through the swimming, through the entertainment, through, you know, through the academic side of things, do you continue to learn? Is that oh. the objective for you oh. in having having a conversation, the podcast, that you continue to learn about yourself as well? It's it's always it's like I, I I love to learn. I love to learn. Um, it's all it's just part of me, and and um, so absolutely, that's a major part of why I do it. And it it also boils down to you know what we what I said earlier, which is when athletes get together and talk. When we're all together, we talk about some stuff and, and if there could be a fly on the wall, I think that there's informative and interesting and entertaining material that comes from those types of conversations. So what I'm trying to do with the podcast is to create kind of a fly on the wall scenario for the listeners um, so that they feel as though they're privy to thoughts that are not necessarily accessible to them throughout the regular course of their day. And that's what I hope, that's what I hope I'm doing. And clearly this is what you're doing as well. So. Well, it's the intention is to effectively get those conversations that are beyond the, the, the velvet ropes kind of thing, right? The, yeah, you're, you've made your way into the locker room. You're not just on the pool deck. You're into where the real conversations happen. And to me, that's that's the essence. I mean, you and I are both are both sports people at heart, and I feel like there's an essential part of sport that sport is. I often say it's my greatest teacher, right? And and it's because I've had to struggle along the sure. way, sure. And 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 because I've wanted to struggle and go, okay, well, I'm learning something from that struggle. And this is the message that you're talking about is that. Yeah, as a result of those struggles, as a result of getting closer and closer to the top of the pyramid when everybody has the same preparation. Mm -hmm. And what's going to then be the differentiator? Yeah. Yeah. That's when it gets to the cool part, right? That's that's totally when it gets to the cool part. And I think one of the reasons that athletes, no matter what their backgrounds, you know, you're you're younger than me, you're in different sports than me, you're you're Paralympian, I'm an Olympian you know, we're eras apart, but you, you and I are a perfect example that when we got together, when we talked on the phone for the first time, we hit it off immediately. And it's the shared experience that you have with people who have been through it, that 
is 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 invigorating and it's 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 it, it's 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 nourishing your soul because we don't get to talk about those things with somebody who truly truly at the core understands because very few people have been through it few people have been through it but it also works on a universal level as well right so it's 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 representative of that human journey yeah that we're all going through this idea of of taking a risk you know, they're saying, yeah, I'm going to try that. I'm going to, I'm going to try to see how good I can possibly be. This is, this is what you said. That's a big, that's a big statement to figure out how good I could possibly be. Like, okay. You know, do you, do you really want to know? Because if you want to know, there are going to be these milestones along the way. And some of them are going to be really difficult. Yeah. Yeah. And, and look, you, you, you're shooting for the stars and if you miss, it's a hard landing. It's just, it's just the way it is. You understand every athlete that aspires to get to that level understands that e equation fully, completely in their heart, in their bones. They understand that equation and they still go and they still do it. They still go and they still do it. It takes a certain type of person, I think, in order to really put themselves on the line like that. To put themselves on the line like that but then what I'm also taking from you is, is yes, you, you, shoot, you shoot for the moon and, and the landing can be really hard, but then you're also willing to go and do it again in a different arena. <laughs> yeah, I think um, I, I've often, I've often said, I, I, I usually use it to, um, to refer to swimmers that to be a good swimmer, you have to have a screw loose. And there's, there's a, there's an element to that, that I think is true that you have to just truly, your brain has to function in, in a way that a vast majority of people's doesn't. Right. That is crazy to a certain extent. Well, what you're doing is what you're, what, like if, if I was to say to my grandfather, when I was 14 or 15 years old, when I really thought that I could make an Olympic team that I want to go to the Olympics. He would have rolled his eyes and said, good luck. Okay. Make sure you have a backup plan. Yes. Are you going to, yes. Become a banker. Be sure to become a, yeah. Yeah. No, but it's like he was wired differently. He didn't understand. Like you don't, can't expect somebody to understand it necessarily, but he didn't understand it. No, but, but I think that is the part of the joy that, that we as athletes and hopefully a lot of other people experience as well is is this sense and because it's because it doesn't have to be in sport it doesn't have to be at the very pinnacle of whatever you do it's transferable but it's transferable and it's the curiosity that you were talking about that desire to figure out how good i could really be yeah yeah and i i, I think i think that yeah. Um, I, I remember it was my, it was my, it was my advisor, Matt Kahn, who, you know, I, I remember I had to, you know, there were certain assignments and certain projects that would be impacted by competition, et cetera. And, and he said, he said something to the effect of, I will always give you the benefit of the doubt because you go through life in a wanderlust. And it, it was that, the reason that, that that's really the first time I heard the term wanderlust in a sentence. And it, it, that was kind of like one of those moments, like that coach that said, Hey, you have talent. When I was 11 years old, that was kind of like, Oh, I've got wanderlust. And I always, I, I think, I, I think there's just part of my, you know, that DNA thing that you were talking about. 
I'm just blessed with a lot of wanderlust and I enjoy it. Exactly. And somebody had the ability to actually name it for you because you oh, might was, not have he was, necessarily he was a recognized genius. it. <laughs> no, he was a genius. He was awesome. That is awesome. Well, John, thanks so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure to get a chance to talk to you. And I, I love hearing your story. I, I mean, just I, I look at so much of what you've done and think it is just so cool. So, well, likewise, I mean, you too. I mean, come on, you're, you're, you're amazing with your commentary and hosting and hall of fame and, oh, it's just a, yeah. So kudos back. Thank you. Well, I am glad that we get to share what we've done with, with the next generation or with the current generation and, and with the general public, really. I mean, that to me is an amazing opportunity, amazing gift that we get to be able to share it. Yeah. Thanks for being part of that. Something I obviously feel quite strongly about. So. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, keep doing what you're doing. So thanks again. And thank you to all of you for tuning in. I hope you've had a great time. I hope you've enjoyed our discussion. The greatest gift you can give us is to tell your friends, tell your friends to tune in, tell your friends that we'll have another great guest next week. And please like us, please follow us. And we will do our best to give you the most amazing content that we can. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us. Please subscribe to Chris Whitehall Living It for more stories on the adaptive community, the Paralympics, artists, athletes, entrepreneurs, experts in the experience of being human. Also follow us on Spotify, Apple, Facebook, and Instagram. I look forward to seeing you next week.